Welcome to episode four of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my scholarly co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversation about life in the shop and topics in making. How are you doing on this fine evening, Mr. Kramer? I'm doing great, Winston. How about you? Uh, I can't complain. Spent the day doing some CAD work and catching up on chores. How about you? Not much time in the shop today. Uh, Earlier this week, it was pretty good, though. Good and bad. We'll get into that. The good news is I got plenty of time on the machines. Um, The results necessarily weren't what I was looking for. But uh, this weekend, we were actually uh, out doing some stuff with the family. So uh, probably get a little bit more work in this evening. How are things going in in your workshop? I saw you were working on the Hammer of Thor there. It's sort of an experiment. I actually got it over here. You can see it on webcam, but no one else can. It's this purple heart. Uh, maple contraption that I made just because in one of my last project videos I was like it'd be great if I had a mallet to knock these two things together and I I figured the design of this is relatively simple and you can achieve this um, with just three pieces of wood that are uh, three quarters of an inch thick so it's a really easy uh, design but the 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 finished part is it's more than the sum of its components I think Uh, it just has a nice visual heft yeah, it looks beautiful um, from what I can see on Instagram and, and just now when you're holding it up here on the video. Did you do that all in the Shape Oko or is that Pocket NC and Shape Oko or Nomad work? That's entirely Shape Oko. I figured I would try and um, make the design something that other people can, can easily replicate. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it, but I might post SVGs of my design up on my website or uh, Cut Rocket to see where other people take it. Because it's, it's really simple and I'm hoping that like, um, I can sort of get other people to jump on board, do their own twist on it, because I think it's it's a nice step up from just making uh, signs or some of the other basic projects. I think this might be a little more interesting for people. Yeah, that looks really good. I think uh, I'll be watching that tutorial because I, I, I have a pretty big block of Purple Heart here that I haven't done anything with, and uh, I have some Poplar that might work pretty good for the contrasting piece. I, I might actually give that a try here. I would caution you about the purple heart. Some of the things I discovered about it is that as a tropical hardwood, it's got a little uh, oily or a waxy quality about it, which makes it really difficult to uh, tape things down. Uh, so I tried to take a slab of purple heart and stick it to my wasteboard with uh, double-sided tape. And uh, it really didn't take as well as uh, some of the other pieces like the maple or MDF that I've used before. Use tabs and clamp down the, uh, the stock block. That would help out a lot. And uh, also for the glue up, these layers, because of that waxy, oily quality, they don't always glue up too nicely. So you got to put a lot of clamping force down. Make sure you have a really good interface of glue between the two layers. Um, If you can scuff it up a little beforehand, that also helps. But give the glue like the full duration to to cure. Some people say like type bond 2 might also work better. I'm just using the original type bond. So some other things to consider. Good to know. I guess I'll finally have to buy some uh, woodworking clamps. (laughs) So one thing I'd like to mention, because time is running short, is uh, we created a DFX Launch launch Edition t-shirt. There's less than a week left to go if you're interested in getting one. Uh, It's a T-Blaster or T-Blast campaign up on Storefront here, and we'll we'll post the link in the uh, show notes. But uh, it's a really nice t-shirt. It's a cotton poly blend, very comfortable. Winston and I got some that came in this week. Yeah, I'm happy with it. And so anyway, I just want to leave a reminder here that there's, uh, so this podcast will drop Tuesday. There's probably going to be six days left if you want to pick one of of the uh, limited edition launch or limited quantity launch edition t-shirt before they're all gone. 
So what else are you working on in your shop this week or the last two weeks? I just wrapped up the uh, the PVC machining video using X-Edge tools like the razor and mill line, but I found that PVC just it didn't really present much of a a challenge for those cutters just because it's a really low density material. So as soon as you cut it, you don't need to worry about like chip evacuation because it it compacts really nicely in slots. It like disintegrates when you cut through it again. I've got some HDPE and some polypropylene lined up for some testing down the road, but that's actually going to have to wait because today I was talking with one of my friends and um, she kind of threw another surprise project on me. So I just bought some 7075 aluminum. Excited to try and uh, mill that for the first time. And uh, we'll see where that goes. I'm real curious to see where that goes. I've been wanting to try that myself. I haven't tried any, any aluminum other than 6661, which works really well for me. And 20, I think 2025, which so far I've not found a good recipe for. Is that a, a softer one, like closer to pure aluminum? I know, I think 3000 is pure aluminum. I had some really thin, I guess it's really material. It's designed to be lasered, it's anodized in color. And then you typically, I guess you'd, burn that off with the laser and, and the have metal, you know, the, the pure metal showing through. I've, I bought some to see if I could machine it just to engrave it and then cut the profile out, like to make a, you know, kind of a dog tag shape. And it was really, really gummy. Um, I tried two or three different batches of it just to, you know, I thought maybe there was issue with the first batch. I did not know going in that it was not 6061. So I think after a little research, I found out that's, you know, the really thin sheets like that typically are, I want to say 2025. I'm not sure that's the right series, but it's a 2000 series aluminum. Yeah. So I just need to do a little research. I was using 6061 speeds on it and it, it's not been good. I can only imagine a couple of guys at my work recently got a Shapeoko. Uh, they want to do just some quick prototyping in their lab. They've been on the phone with me a lot as this is their first time like with the machine and actually doing any sort of real machining and they they had a piece of scrap aluminum that they were testing on and uh, they were they were asking me why is like the cutter gumming up so much I, I walked over and I I took a look at it and it still had a sticker on it and it was a 5000 series aluminum yeah so that didn't turn out so well Th- they had already cut through probably two-thirds of it it was only about an eighth of an inch thick and so I just loaded up the, the slot with WD-40 and uh, they, they powered through that for their, their quick prototype. Um, but I told them for all future work, don't settle for anything less than 6061 T6. Yeah, so 7075, I've been wanting to buy a little bit and uh, see if I can develop good speeds and feeds on all the machines for that. And add it to my uh, table before I publish. Curious to see what you get. You're going to do it on the uh, Shape Oko? Yeah, um, I would have done it on the Nomad, but the piece that I'm trying to make is about 10 inches long. And even diagonally, it's a bit of a tight fit for the Nomad. So uh, shape Oko it is. Just curious why why 7075 are they doing? Does it need some extra strength? So the part is a, a tool that's going to be part of a rock climbing kit. It's nothing critical, but it's going to be abused a lot. So some of the other products that are on the market for this uh, that she wants me to sort of do my own spin on, um, they all use either steel or 7075. So uh, being that I really don't want to machine steel, the uh, aluminum's the only option. It's uh, I'm looking forward to it just because everything I've heard like just on the grapevine is like it machines better because it's harder. So like you get nicer chips coming off of it. It's less gummy. We'll see if it lives up to its reputation. And uh, is this week's video going to be your the one about the uh, mallet? Uh, yeah, that is up next on the queue. Not sure if I'm going to be able to fit it in uh, this coming Friday or 
if not this Friday, then the one after it. Uh, I've got a, a couple other engagements. Um, I'm going to be interviewed by 96 boards on one of their uh, hourly uh, interviews. There, there, there's some, some other busy things this week. Uh, I'm taking a spontaneous trip down to Washington, D.C. to see a friend. We'll see if I've got time to squeeze out the video. If not, next week. Looking forward to uh, maybe trying one of your projects for the first time. I'll shoot you over my Fusion file so you can uh, take a look. You can laugh at my uh, cam tool paths. <laughs> I'm sure they're no worse than mine. I spent most of this week working on uh, that commission piece I talked about, I think, on the last podcast, the uh, Delrin gear train component and had some good progress and bad outcome with that. Actually, all the machining on the front side of it weren't really well. What I found out is when I uh, clocked the part 180 degrees to go machine some of the backside features, I discovered there's a little bit of a misalignment, especially on the gear teeth. I could see it was not cutting in the same position that I was expecting. So, um, you know, at first I, I thought that was probably due to the 3D printed picture that I was holding. And then I think, you, you know, you were the first one to say, hey, that's probably not really wouldn't really have the impact that I was seeing and um, on the way the parts weren't aligned. And there's a couple of other folks on Instagram reached out and said the same thing. And actually, uh, Pocket NC reached out to me after seeing the video that I posted and said, hey, um, I have basically an early production V2, and they've since refined their uh, calibration and testing process when they manufactured the V2. And they shared the uh, kind of the updated process with me that'll give me a more accurate compensation for for the rotary axis. So I started to run through that this weekend. Uh, process is pretty straightforward. Really just need a, a good Noga arm and a dial indicator that reads in thousands. But uh, I failed on the first part because I don't have a good Noga arm. <laughs> I have a, uh, a cheap eBay special that I bought really more for holding uh, camera gear. I didn't buy it to hold an indicator, but it's, you know, it's designed to do that. I tried to put it to work on the doing the calibration tests uh, yesterday and really just, it wouldn't stay put. The, the arm is pretty good. I was surprised, you know, it seems to be pretty rigid, but the magnet in the base just doesn't want to stick to the, uh, the one little piece of steel that's in the, the pocket NC. So I end up ordering a, a real Noga, authentic Noga. It should be here tomorrow and I'll, I'll run through the calibration again. Hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have a, a better calibrated machine than I have today and a perfect part for my client. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how that goes for you because I'm pretty sure I've also got one of the uh, the first batch pocket NCs. Uh, mine shipped, I think, late December, so it should be pretty close to your serial number. So one of the things running through the process and the instructions, um, so pocket NC has been doing a really good job of keeping uh, updates flowing as far as firmware. The system's based on Linux. I think it's Linux, CNC, and... Uh, Rockhopper for the GUI, the web interface for the machine, all running on the BeagleBone. And there's been some recent updates to support this updated calibration process, some UI now to edit some of the Linux CNC configuration file variables that uh, the customers would be touching if they're doing this calibration in the field. I don't know um, how many PNC listeners we have, but uh, keep an eye on on software updates. Uh, I think Winston and I have both been pretty good about applying them and product gets better every time I do an update. There's been a lot of good UI improvements lately. Oh yeah, so the rest of the, the week, I, I did get my Shapeoko enclosure, uh, at least the 8020 frame fully assembled. Went together pretty well. I have, uh, I might buy slightly longer door rails for whatever reason I didn't, I think I did a last minute change in Fusion before I placed the order. Um, and I didn't take good notes on why I did it 
like I basically shortened two of the horizontal rails. I think I was going to put the little plastic end caps on the end of it, but um, after I put it all together, I actually think I want the side rails of the door to be taller, and I don't really want any end caps sticking out on the 8020. Just doesn't look as clean, so I may reorder those two rails and uh, reframe the door. But everything else is is went to went together really well. Hinges and all that stuff are working. Uh, just need to get the still need to get the panels and the windows and the MDF. Home Depot's got a piece waiting for me over there, and then the uh, polycarbonate. But I'm actually holding off now. I've got the dimensions I need, but I'm actually you know I've kind of settled on where I want windows and where I want just opaque material. So I'm going to go look at it. Home Depot has some uh, one eighth uh, paneling material that looks like it might be pretty cheap, like a plywood type, like the sheeting. They have two. They have one that's uh, looked like a plastic composite. It was really cheap. Yeah, it was really, you know, it's a wall covering, I think is what they sell it for. comes in a sheet big enough that it could be cut to fit my side and my back and the ceiling or the roof of the machine. And then there was another wood-based material. I can't remember exactly what it was. I have the part number, but um, those are the two that were like pretty affordable and came in a large enough sheet that it could be cut to fit my kind of odd sized panel spaces. Uh, so hopefully that'll get finalized this week and I'll hoping to have everything together before the next podcast and actually have some parts made on the shape or at least some test cuts done on the shape for the next podcast. What are you, uh, doing for lighting inside the enclosure? Are you doing an led strip? I've been pretty happy with the, uh, I think they're called Kiwi lights. Uh, it's the same thing I have in my nomad. They're, they're really under counter lighting solution for the kitchen, uh, kind of a modular led lighting. It's all 3030 except for uh, there's three 3060 rails in the top. So that gives me an extra set of uh, slots to hang lighting off, even though you know, one of them shoots up by the panel and then the other one will be free for creating it like a 3D printed uh, uh, clamp to hold the lighting. So I'll probably, I'm either gonna go with one strip or three, depending on uh, how much glare I get out of the front. My thinking on the design of the enclosure was really, I think I mentioned it last time, I really don't want to hit my head so it's tall. <laughs> but the other thing, I really want to have good access for a video camera so I can you know, get some good project videos for what's going on in the shape of So lighting's also a big factor there. I want to make sure I don't have anything glaring into the lens. Just a tip, from filming from the outside, you can get glare off the door. So sometimes what I do is I'll just turn off the rest of the lights in the room figure out what your particular filming situation is and adjust accordingly. So hopefully, I think two more weeks I'll have that done. Um, I've, <laughs> I got one spinner case done this week. You know, that's the only, really the only wood work I do here in the shop. Um, so I finished one, I've got another one to go. And then uh, uh, my next project I'll probably be kicking off once I finish up the gear component is uh, a Paduke enclosure for one of my little homebrew digital clocks. My wife's asked for uh, one of the, my little digital clocks and put a decent enclosure on The one I have is a 3D printed enclosure with the aluminum bezel that I cut on the, uh, the Nomad. So I'm gonna go ahead and probably still aluminum on the front and a nice uh, wooden enclosure. So that's my, that's my little project for the week. I, I can't picture this. I don't know if you've ever posted a picture of it, but I'm curious to see how the, the 3D printed appearance goes with the aluminum. Because I feel like that's like contrasting, like really high-end machining and then like plastic. Actually, it looks pretty good. Because um, so I did a couple of things. The material, the 3D, and I'll, I'll post some pictures of it. I think there might be one from a long time ago on Instagram. The filament I use actually, uh, it's a metal, it almost looks like a metallic filament. It's a silver gray. And I mean, unless you're really, and I printed it on really fine uh, it took forever to print, but I printed it on really fine uh, line height. You can barely see the serrated, or what's the word, kind of a 
the, the laminated look. Um, Great. It looks like it's built up of layers. So these these are really really small. So unless you you can feel them when you touch it. The first one I made originally was going to get a, a wooden enclosure, but it ended up with the electronics that I ended up putting inside there. It was actually a little deeper than I originally had in mind uh, to fit everything in there. And I didn't have an end mill that would quite reach down into like an inch and a half of stock. I do now. That's a good amount, though. I, I have end mills now that are, that are that long, but uh, I get, you know, I start getting to a little bit of chatter, even in wood with something like that. So I may actually split it like do a center section and then a rear section. And the rear sections, uh, it's hard to describe without seeing it, but it's it's louvered because there's an ambient air sensor in there. So that kind of has a little section to let the airflow freely through the back of the enclosure and to kind of keep it separated from the digital logic side. So the heat of that doesn't affect the ambient air sensor. It's kind of hard to describe, <laughs> but um, yeah, but, but it actually it worked better if I do like a center center section and then a rear section out of a separate piece of stock and then run the bolts all the way through them or the screws to to put it together as kind of a like a laminated construction so we'll see i'll experiment with that this week uh i think that's the only other thing i've got my main priority is the gear part because i'm running further behind than i wanted to on that but the flip side is i'm learning something you know i didn't know about the pocket in c and i think my machine's going to be better and really dialed in when i'm done with this this part I was just sorry, I was focused on the pun. You said the flip side and you realized <laughs> the error when you rotated your part 180 degrees. So talking more about that rotation issue, I think uh, you wanted to touch on what makes the Pocket NC so special, what makes 5-axis machining so different. Um, you want to go into a little more just conceptually for the people who don't have a 5-axis machine. What is multi-axis machining all about? Yeah, that's a good question. I asked probably one of the most uh, common questions I get on my Instagram feed is, you know, tell me more about the pocket and see why did you get a five axis machine? Uh, you know, along with is, is that really a five axis machine? You know, they don't really know what the capabilities are of the machine. Yeah, um, I've seen that a couple of times on my videos, like, oh, is it like, oh, it's only moving three axes at a time. Yeah, just to clear the air, the, the Pocket NC is a, it's a desktop sized machine, but it does all the things you'd expect out of multi-axis all the way up to simultaneous five-axis machining, which we'll kind of talk about with the different different types of uh, machining that lies beyond the more common three-axis machining. There's a lot of parts where five-axis, simultaneous five-axis really is probably the only way to make a part, but much more common and much more useful is a couple of other things you can do with a five-axis machine. Uh, one of them is uh, four-axis machining, right? A lot of a lot of people just add a, a rotary axis to kind of let you work on cylindrical parts or potentially put up a tombstone, which is a it's a it's a fixture that holds multiple pieces of stock, and you rotate it typically 90 degrees. You know, work on a part, rotate the the table another 90 degrees, and you've got a fresh piece of stock to make a second part. It's really kind of a productivity uh, enhancer. They can think of it as a carousel for parts. Yeah, you're still doing, you're basically doing three-axis machining um, when you say four-axis four machining um, or index four-axis machining or three-plus-two machining. That's, uh, I've seen lots of definitions, but the one that made sense to me was basically there's a fourth or fourth and fifth axis move, but they're, they happen during non-cutting. They're basically reorienting the, the stock. Um, when you're actually cutting the part, you're back to the traditional three-axis. So usually, you know, the cutter will pull back from the part. You might rotate uh certain number of degrees, come back in and start doing three-axis machining on a different facet of the part. At no point there's is there any more than three axes moving at a time on three plus two axis machining. 
on a three axis machine, you're typically, you know, the tools coming perpendicular to the stock and can really only reach anything that you can get to from a vertical descent into the stock. Um, what you can't easily get to are like the side walls to come in from the side. If you need to drill a hole, say in the side of a cubic piece of stock and then also machine something on the top, you know, features on all four sides, like a good example is that Turner cube you did on your rocket and see, right? You can do that on a three axis machine, but it requires multiple setups, removing the stock, manually turning it, uh, getting it realigned. Um, yeah. For every single face that gets pretty tedious. If there's something like pocket and see what I've, I can do all that in one setup, which is typically going to be very accurate because I don't have to remove the stock. Uh, it's going to start right in the position where I made the first cut to where I make the last cut. You know, the stock has not moved in the fixture and the fixture's not moved on the machine. So it has some good advantages. And then I think you've, you've done more simultaneous five axis than I have so far. I'm just starting to get into that. All of those right now, I think it's flow, contour, blend, which might be beta. I think it's still beta. I haven't really seen that in the uh, interface too much. I think there's only three choices right now. Yeah, the, the five axis is useful for following the contours, particularly with flow. The strategy basically just has your end mill come in and maintain a certain offset, just so you're not like cutting with like the very center of it. It basically allows the machine to follow the contours and trace um, just parallel over tangential to every point on the surface of your part, which is, it, it looks really impressive. Um, but it's kind of sort of a finishing strategy. I was talking with uh, Kurt Chen, and he said his approach to five axis is basically uh, adaptive clear everything and uh, just flow the rest and hope for the best. I, I've done adaptive clearing uh, three plus two. That's actually what I'm doing on the gear part. That worked really well. It was quick. Uh, it was super easy to set up in Fusion, um, especially when I think about what I've had to have done with the three axis machine and flipping that part. Uh, just to do the front and back, which were, you know could have could have done it, but it have been a lot of work. Um, but that part also has some drilled holes uh, that come in through the top, some side features that really would have been difficult to do on three axis, even with the you know if I had a fancy fixture or jig to hold it. Very unlikely to have got it perfectly aligned and and every feature uh, correct. Of course, you know on the pocket and C so far, I've also failed to get it perfectly aligned. Working on that, but that's not your fault. Remains to be seen. Yeah, it potentially could be. I, I think the calibration work on the machine will it'll basically narrow it down to if there's still problems after that. Um, either I'm really not understanding my 3D fixture and make, make sure it's aligned the way I think it is. I don't think that should be as critical as I was originally thinking, right? Because it's really positioning of the cutting is relative to uh, the center of rotation on that machine. So it doesn't really care where the stock is. As long as I kind of face off both sides, I know I'm kind of starting with a perpendicular piece to the cutting tool. But beyond that, I, um, you know, it's also making sure I get the dimensions correct on the stock before I set it up in cam and all that stuff. But I usually don't have problems there, so there's a pretty good chance the calibration is going to address what I'm running into here. Yeah, so one other thing is uh, wrapped fourth axis. I don't know if you've done any wrapped fourth axis work. Typically, you would use it to machine uh, something on a cylindrical piece of stock while it's rotating. So basically, the fourth axis is continuously rotating while you're maybe cutting a groove into or machining a groove into uh, like a bar of stock. Uh, I've got some projects cammed up, but I haven't actually run them yet that would take advantage of continuous fourth axis, which is supported in Fusion and uh, works pretty well in the Pocket NC. I've seen some demo videos. So I actually have a couple of questions about that. I remember seeing it in one of Xander's videos, his tutorials, and I feel like he said that you can't do a full 360 degree uh, wraparound for a contour. 
Yeah, it has has to be a. Cl- my understanding is it has to be a, a closed profile infusion. Yeah, it's not it has nothing to do with pocket and Z. I think the you know the restrictions infusion for that for the uh, wrapped fourth axis feature. Um, there's some workarounds. I think he even did it in his video where he used patches to kind of uh, to kind of close some features that were open, and then you can select the contour you want and uh, and generate the toolpath. I might have to use something like that in. Uh... So someone on one of my videos suggested like chess pieces as a, a project to do on the pocket NC. And I think that's actually a really good idea because you're making multiple pieces and you can really dial in like your, your feeds and speeds and try and achieve like a good surface finish. So I think it's a great practice project. Um, there, there are some pieces that would benefit from uh, a wrapped toolpath, I think. I, I do plan on playing around with that, but I think based on what I've, learned doing the gear part and then I had a couple other pieces I ran three plus two on the pocket and see just for testing. Um, that looks like, I think that's going to be my go-to use for the machine. So that, that looks so much easier <laughs> than some of the stuff I've contemplated on doing on the three axis machine. I'm going to try to, uh, make one of my spinner bodies is a, you know, just a single piece workflow on the pocket and see using three plus two and tabs and see if I can, uh, uh make the best spinner I've made so far. I, I have a pretty good, fixture on the on the nomad i get pretty precise alignment when i flip the pieces with uh, some precision dowels but not exactly perfect every time i still have to do a little sometimes a little bit of uh smoothing of some mismatched lines on there or rejecting the part if it's really if i really <laughs> was in a hurry and didn't really get the plate lined up right but you know i want to try that on the bucket and see and just just you know, if i only do one i just want to kind of see how well that works uh, but I, I think i'll be doing lots of three plus two on that machine and uh, definitely we'll be posting about it so um stepping back how would you like what orientation are you planning on putting that spinner on the pocket nc are you going to be able to fit within its uh, work envelope yeah so i the body of the spinner right so i would do it just like you uh, if anyone's been watching my instagram and saw how i did the gear part um using my uh, 3d fixture riser or a design like that i would mount the stock the plate stock vertically you know, starting with the small, the small a piece of stock as I could get away with, it would encompass the body and al- allow enough room for some tabs, so it doesn't get too far away from the clamping point. I don't, want, I don't really want the stock vibrating or anything. And then, um, you know, basically just go at it from front and back. It's a two-sided job, so it doesn't really require anything else. Uh, no, no side access or sidewall access. It's just mill some features in the front, flip it over, um, chamfer some holes in the back and you know, do some finishing passes on both sides. Slowly working towards trying to do a spinner body in titanium. So that's kind of where, Ooh. that's why I still care about it. <laughs> Someday, at least for me, I, if I'm the only one that owns it, I'm gonna own uh, one of my spinners in titanium. So You're um, a brave man, <laughs> a foolish man, but a brave man. <laughs> and let's see what else, um, you know, kind of back to the five or multi-axis machining. I'm still learning quite a bit with the pocket NC. I would say uh, I'm just transitioning from novice to maybe a little bit of novice plus intermediate skill level on everything but the simultaneous five axis, which I, I'm still way behind you on. But some of the things I figured out with the machine are uh, the softwares. The CAM software is a big factor in getting everything out of something like the pocket NC or any, any of the fi- multi-axis machines because... Uh, multi-axis software or cam software that can do more than three axis, especially all the way up to simultaneous five axis tends to be pretty expensive, right? Um, I'm not aware of anything other than fusion 360 that would make uh, full simultaneous five axis 
cam toolpath generation available to somebody that was like a hobbyist or small business guy maker. Yeah, there's there's plenty of options for three axis, but in the five axis world, it's it's really just industrial grade software because there's no expectation that hobbyists are going to be using five axis. As far as I know, there's only really one, you know, one five axis machine under 5K that's commercially supported with the company behind them that's uh, kind of uh, maker friendly. Your insertion of the uh, the commercially um, supported is a big issue. Otherwise, someone would jump in and say, oh, you could buy a, a Chinese made machine and import it for whatever, $1,000 less or something. But it's really a, a much trickier thing to work with because like you don't have the first party support like the posts and all the other things that make it usable on a, a regular basis yeah i mean the whole um engineering complexity goes up quite a bit every time you add an additional uh access right an additional degree of freedom so you know everything from the software and the controller itself it's got a lot more in the case of the pocket and see it's stepper motors right There's a lot more pulses to generate to run five steppers versus three so obviously you know it's got to have a more powerful uh, uh single board computer inside and and quite a bit of engineering in the actual mechanical pieces to to make it a viable five axis uh, especially at the price point they're hitting right so it's 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 pretty incredible machine for especially for under 5k i uh i'm a little intimidated by that machine still <laughs> just because it's it's really more uh just there's so much to learn right which is exactly why i bought it i'm loving uh finding out about how to to expand beyond three axis it's been it's been a good journey so far i don't know if you want to touch on it now but i'm curious to see what your expectations for the machine were before you bought it yeah it's actually uh the three plus two do, doing work in single setup that was what sold me on it i think five axis seems to be the fast setup for uh diverse product workflow or part workflow yeah it gives you a lot of flexibility because you can do your standard three plus two or you could take on those really unique jobs that require five axis but i think the the biggest value is it with just like using it as a fourth axis with like the tombstones or the the tooling towers and those ideas i wanted to try to leverage on the pocket and see mentioned it last episode working on some fixture ideas if it works out then actually we might end up with a a small tombstone that we can put on the machine you know for small parts that's actually really cool idea where i could just maybe do eight parts at once just through two on each of the four faces of say a small vertical fixture right that has some clamping on each side i'm trying to think of what's a small enough project that you could actually stick four of them on the machine's uh workspace i actually have some jewelry ideas so i've been getting a lot of uh ideas coming from some friends that are starting to understand what i can do in my shop here I don't have a lathe, right? So five axis machine is probably the next best thing for trying to make a ring, uh, especially one that has you know kind of complex curves on the inside and outside. So that's one thing I might try. My main motivation in buying it was to be able to do three plus two kind of as my commodity skill on that machine and then explore simultaneous five axis more as a learning opportunity. If it was just the five axis piece as you know, kind of a something to play around with, I probably would have put off that purchase. Three plus two is going to actually be very useful to me as I kind of work on everyday carry stuff. It's all small. The smaller work envelope on it is not really going to be much of a hindrance for the kind of stuff I want to make. Everything's fairly small. If I can live with another mill, <laughs> pocket and sees a much bigger work envelope than the than the other mill. Yeah, that's true. I, I came from the other direction. I started with a shape Oko and I started getting smaller and smaller CNCs. So that's why some of my projects have been a little more challenging. Like I can barely fit this block of wood and I'm getting part collisions with the the chassis of the pocket nc 
So uh, I've clearly been coming at it from a different direction. Yeah, you know, I was kind of talking about things I'm learning as I, I get more familiar with the pocket and see um, tabs in Fusion that I've never had to look at before, <laughs> like the multi-axis machining. Work holdings very different than three axis. I mean, work holding to me is, seems to be much more critical in five axis to getting the best out of what the machine can do. In three axis, it's a piece of cake because you can just clamp parts wherever you need to or use double-sided tape. In five axis, you're holding onto a, a really small fraction of that part's surface area. Yeah, the goal typically on the on a five axis machine, right, is to make all but one side accessible, right? You have to hold the part somewhere. You know, if you're holding a piece of stock from the bottom, then you should be able to get to the front, back, top, left, and right side, right? And you need enough clearance to do that without colliding with the, the fixture or with the machine, right? And give enough clearance for the cutter to get in there. So work holding quite a bit to learn compared to three axis. Easy to find good ideas by just looking at Instagram on the, you know, the instant machinist community there. Those guys are all working with five axis and most of the stuff I'm actually trying here is all based on ideas I've seen on how they're doing it. I'm finding uh, long reach stubs much more useful than I have in the past. A lot of long reach tooling, a couple of different tool holders. You care a lot about stick out and uh, clearance of your spindle nose from you know, all the complex rotating parts and moving parts that are going on on the on the stock side. So, uh, yeah, it's all about avoiding collisions and uh, being able to reach deep into you know potentially a, an angled piece of the of the material you're cutting. Yeah, you know, I was talking about fusion uh, multi-axis machining with fusion with something like the Pocket NC. The extra axis support comes in uh, Fusion Ultimate, which is kind of the fully fully paid up deluxe version of Fusion. I think the only other license that includes access to multi-axis toolpath generation is the uh, startup, what you know, I call it the free version. Um, you get an ongoing license, you know, annual license for that, but you can renew it that in perpetuity as long as you meet, as long as you continue to meet the, uh, the restrictions on that license, which are as a hobbyist or as a small business with, I think in the US it's income of less than 100,000 a year, which is really, I mean, it's one of the best deals in CAD CAM out there. Because uh, it's such a capable product, it's and it's getting better all the time. But yeah, I mean, as far as five axis, I don't know of any other software product that's in reach of a, a hobbyist or small sales volume business um, other than Fusion. I'm really glad this relationship worked out between Pocket NC and, and Fusion, because otherwise, I really don't know how their business model would survive without something to generate the tool pass. But uh, I don't know of anyone that's programming five, you know, full simultaneous five axis and doing, you know, coding it up by hand. Someone's going to probably write a comment there. Oh, yeah, we do it all the time in our shop. I didn't do five axis, but I, uh, I wrote in just a basic, some cheap code to uh, plunge the end mill into the stock and then just rotate the part just so I could um, cut a little groove around the circumference of a part. Uh, but that's about the extent of, I think, five axis programming that you could do by hand. Yeah, I mean, of all the machines I purchased right now, that one is the, I guess, the most intriguing one for me and seems to be the most interesting one uh, for my followers as far as if I counted the number of questions that came out on Pocket NC versus the other machines. Um, but they're all very curious questions. So not A lot of people just don't really understand what it is and what it does. Um, they just know it looks it looks odd and it's moving oddly compared to what they're used to on, say, their shape go or something. As far as uh, hobby CNCs go, the five axis is where like it really crosses the line from, oh, I understand that too. Oh, that looks like witchcraft. There's a lot of curiosity out there. Yeah, so I, I get asked quite a few questions about the pocket and see. Um, one of the most common ones is uh, actually about the build volume and 
I have trouble answering that because it's actually, it depends so much on the orientation, right? Of the, of how you're holding the, the work and how you're coming at it. There's, there's no one single answer on that, but now I just point people to your, uh, Bluetooth speaker. Say, I say, you know, here's the block of wood that, uh, Winston machined. You can go at least that big. I think, and that was, what was that? Uh, three by three by three by I think four and a half. And that's like, not that's, that's beyond what I can recommend just because each of those individually will fit in the, the travel limits of the machine. Like it, it can go like, I think plus or minus like four inches, four and a half inches in X and Y and like three inches in Z or something. But a, a block of wood that's three by three by four and a half diagonally um, is enough to crash into the chassis of the machine. So if you had a cylindrical piece of stock or you had something that's four and a half inches tall, but it's slender, um, you can get around it. But it's it really depends on the shape of the stock and how much you're willing to push that build volume. The cam software can surprise you too with some of the linking moves that it makes and a good example, like there might be a A, B axis move that would be, would have been safe if the wire carriage was a little, sitting a little higher or a little lower <laughs> relative to where the spindle or uh, the spindle was. So I think, you know, I ran, I ran the machine into itself. It's easier to collide these uh, five axis machines if you're not careful. There's improvements coming from Autodesk as they're, they're adding um, machine configuration to Fusion. Actually, I think it's already in there. I'm not sure if it's considered still beta or not uh, it, it takes really two things to get that uh, get the advantage of that one is you know autodesk has to add support for it and kind of integrate the machine configuration data or machine definition is really what it is right um, into the cam and then somebody either the manufacturer of the machine or uh, a dedicated uh, user of the machine needs to come up with an accurate description of the machine right and describe it to fusion it's really around uh, I actually haven't looked at it yet, but uh, I've seen some mention of it on the Pocket NC forum. So I think, you know, defines all the motion limits of the axes and you will start maybe seeing better simulation in Fusion, uh, especially on the five axis toolpaths, kind of whether it's going to collide with the machine or not. So, you know, the higher end cam packages already kind of give you that hypermill, the really expensive stuff. You can see very accurate full machine simulation when you're working on five axis cam. Uh, before you ever run that in the machine on, on something like fusion, I see, you know, I can still do cam simulation, but it doesn't really show me what I need to know about five axis. So, uh, and, and then I think pocket and C posted, uh, something on Instagram a month or so ago, where I think they're also working, uh, to make simulation uh, a little better with the five axis machine. Yeah. Do you remember so, that? Yeah, it was a teaser. So I don't know what else they've got working on there, but it, what I saw on there looked pretty good. Um, we'll see where they go with that. And I'm, I'm actually not sure if that's tied in with the Fusion work or if it's kind of a standalone product. It was hard to tell from the post, but uh, but anything would help. You know, I, it's not a big issue for most of the stuff I do, but I think like when you're working with a piece like you had on that machine where you're right at the limits of, uh, or really had very little clearance right between the various moving parts, that would be. I, I had negative clearance. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it's easy to work around that stuff as long as you know it's, going to happen that's where simulate you know what simulation is all about the next probably 12 months can be really good uh improvements in fusion and and uh, simulation side making more confident running some of the five axis stuff that we do people ask you know is it a useful machine and, and i'm past the point where i can easily say yes you know within some constraints of what you're trying to do with it right 
really the only one I'd be comfortable cutting anything harder than aluminum. So I've, I've done stainless steel in the pocket and C and uh, we'll definitely be doing some titanium in it. So far, you know, I like the spindle power on that machine. Works really well for what I try to do. It's quiet. Bought the actual pocket and C, you know, the, the official enclosure. Uh, it's pretty heavy gauge steel and it really cuts the noise down. It's probably the quietest machine I have of the three. I would not have expected that, but I'll take your word for it. Definitely because of the enclosure. When I have it op- lid of the enclosure open, it's pretty loud, you know, depending on what I'm doing. So I like that. Keeps the noise down and um, really easy to clean out too. Cleanliness is one thing we should mention that we've both taken particular care to avoid having uh, chips uh, get in the way of the rails and some of the axes. I've had sawdust pack the uh, the linear rails and prevent the machine from homing. So um, that's something I now take particular care to avoid. And I think you've uh, made your own solution to combat that as well. On the pocket NC, I, I use uh, paper temporary window blinds. It makes a nice little accordion to cover. I think it's really, pocket NC really has one vulnerable spot, and that's the uh, the X rail, right? It's the linear rails are exposed and they're horizontal, so chips can build up on those. And it's a very, actually, the whole machine's a very compact design. You know, if you're building up chips in there, there's really, in certain areas, there's no place for them to go. Uh, but it's very easy to uh, put some protection on that area. And I've I've had mine covered for, uh, it's probably been four weeks now. Uh, I ran a bunch of Delrin through it so far and no problem with that. It's actually doing a great job keeping that one spot uh, chip-free. They just kind of, they ride the accordion and then fall off the edge when the when I make a pass over to the right on the X. Um, I've had the same issue, like on my Nomad, I was bad, you know, I was always doing a pretty good job of keeping the machine clean when I was done with it, but I kind of forgot or wasn't aware initially that there was chips falling down through the, uh, little, there's some open channels on the floor for the uh, X axis to, I'm sorry, for the Y axis to move and chips were kind of actually building up under the machine and eventually it blocked the Y axis from homing. What is going on? What did I break? And then I lifted the machine up and it was actually, it was Paduke, it was the wood, right? It was all <laughs> jammed up in the, up against the, I think it was the front of the machine now, I can't remember, but uh, it was a mess. So now I, I have on my maintenance schedule, you know, to clean that out after, uh, I think I check it monthly now. And if I've run a bunch of, you know, especially with the wood jobs for the, the spinner cases, that seems to make the biggest mess under there. The aluminum actually, for whatever reason, uh, probably just where I'm cutting the metal, it doesn't actually fall down that, that one little hole in there. But the wood, this, the tool path, this takes, uh, there's, bunch of wood spraying behind the bed and it gets it gets kind of knocked down under the machine it was a, a lesson to learn that's a testament to how much you use the machine because after a couple months of owning the nomad i picked it up and i saw maybe a millimeter of dust and swerf under there uh, i had a mountain of it under there <laughs> it's got a pretty big Y carriage underneath it's just like every time that carriage came back it was packing a little more in there and eventually it just got to the point where it was overpowering the stepper um, but yeah, it took a while to get there, but now I know, and I tell everyone else, uh, that gets a nomad, you know, I kind of give them some tips and that's one of the ones is, Hey, you know, lift your machine up every once in a while, it's kind of tilt it back on the table and see what's going on under there and stick the vacuum under there and you'll, you'll be happy that you did. It's also one of my, my workhorses here. Well, eventually the, I'm sure the shape Oko will pick up some of the slack. Based on my little project plan, I've got two weeks to get a first recorded cut. I've actually made cut and Delrin on that since uh, since I got it. And that worked great. Made a huge mess. Because <laughs> I, yes, I did it inside the house uh, without an enclosure, but it was a very small piece. So um, 
yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll do my sister's, her uh, gate sign uh, that's coming up in aluminum and possibly some steel pieces and then uh, a bunch more Delrin to cut for fixtures just to get that stock cut down to size and put away until I need it. And uh, after that, I don't know. Yeah, I got to start thinking about what I can do with that bigger 16 by 16 work area. I'm not used to doing projects that big. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a fun area to explore. It'll be nice though. I think just even in the, the rapids and the feed rates alone, you're going to save a ton of time. Yeah. So you and I are going to be talking quite a bit. Um, so I know you've tweaked your machine. I think you've since backed it off, but for a particular project, you were trying to find the, I guess, the edge of uh, performance on that machine, right? Yeah. So the end mills that I had from X-Edge, um, those are designed for high feed rate, high material removal rates. And so for that in plastics, you got to push that machine pretty fast. Um, their recommended feeds and speeds vary from 200 to 500 inches per minute. And uh, even after that, they have an as- like a little asterisk. And that's like, if you can get your spindle higher than 24,000 RPM, you can actually feed even faster than 500. So uh, I-, I opened up the-, the gerbil settings and sort of unlocked the machine and, and took off the-, the training wheels and the limits and uh, bumped it up to about 1,000 inches per minute. Um, and... Uh, it was only traveling at that speed for a tiny bit because the uh, the acceleration distance is more than a couple inches. Um, but the the shape boca was it was flying pretty good. Yeah, you could you could see the difference, right? You could tell it was moving faster. Yeah the the downside is that if there are any fusion commands um, that uh, trigger the rapid feed rate and they're incorrect, like if you uh, post a program using the pocket NC. Uh, post-processor instead of the carbide 3d uh, i think it hits um like a g54 or one of those um those hard-coded uh position uh coordinates and so it commands the machine to fly to the homing position um and crash which is pretty terrifying so it's not if you don't need crazy feed rates um it's it's better to sort of Keep some reasonable limits on the uh, feed rates of the Shapeoko. Do it at your own risk, right? <laughs> yeah. Same with the acceleration. Um, I bumped up my acceleration by, I think it was 20%. Uh, the way you, like, you usually calibrate stepper motors and CNCs is you, uh, you run them to the point where you start missing steps and then you back off a certain percentage. I don't know how close to that um, performance envelope I am. And so if I'm cutting something harder and the machine tries to use that more aggressive acceleration and it fails, then I start losing steps and things go wrong. So I don't want to stray too far from those stock settings, just as a matter of guaranteeing success. Yeah, I'm assuming, uh, you know, Shapeoko Carbide probably did quite a bit of experimenting themselves to kind of find some really reliable tuning for the for Gerbil, right, for that machine. The, those settings are where they are for a reason. Speaking of the Shapeoko, I, I probably uh, actually started putting together some kind of the same thing I did when I first got my other machine running through a bunch of uh, speeds and feeds tests with the primary cutters I plan on using and just doing a bunch of testing like uh, like I did with the pocket and C and that's how that's for me a very good way for me to get comfortable um, with certain materials I work with all the time especially you know I'll do a lot with aluminum probably a little bit more with wood than I typically do because I think I'll be doing more wood on the shape Oco uh, than I do on the other machines um, you know, it's boring work, <laughs> but it's it's uh, the data I get from that is useful for me. It gives me a lot of confidence. Um, 
when I take on a project that I know how that cutter is going to perform in that material at that speed. Yeah, that's probably going to be the first bit of work I do on there other than the, the stuff I've got promised is going to be uh, what I call lab work, right? Just developing or characterizing certain cutters that I plan on using, uh, especially the single flutes uh, with those higher spindle speeds and higher horsepower and seeing uh, how, how fast can I go in aluminum, how fast can I go in some of the hardwoods I want to put on there. And then I'm going to start doing some projects with that thing. It's not a bad way to go because you're sort of methodically just expanding your comfort zone and you'll get there pretty quick um, if you're really just laser focused on trying out like, all right, this cutter combination, this material, this feeds and speeds. So I think you'll you'll reach a point where you're comfortable to start actually doing something useful with that machine really quickly. You know, a lot of what I do on speeds and feeds is I'll, I'll have these kind of baseline tests that I've done and... Um, you know, I kind of know in this material at this depth, at this speed, uh, kind of here's what you expect. And I'll interpolate from that, right? A lot of times, you know, maybe I'm going with a little bit slightly bigger cutter, slightly smaller cutter, different number of flutes. Um, I use that data to kind of get in the ballpark when there's been a, a change in variable. And that's worked pretty good on the small machines, but they're all kind of within the same performance envelope. You know, similar spindle power, except the, the Bakken and C's quite a bit more than the other machines, but on the Nomad and the other mill, um, I can usually, without referring to something like a uh, G wizard calculator or something like that, uh, look at some previous data that I've collected and, and pick a good starting speed and feed for a new tool or, um, different, maybe a different tool path. So the shape goes so far out of that range that, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm going to just really start again, um, and collect some data with that machine and kind of see where we go. It's, it's, Tricky because it's you know much hotter spindle or much more powerful spindle. Um, sounds like the machine definitely can move faster than my other machines, uh, but at the same time, it's the rigidities of story is a little different on the Shapeoko than say the Nomad. Yeah, I got to see where that where all that comes together and and what kind of performance I can get out of uh, some of the tools I want to use. I've been intending on making a dedicated video just about um, the machine deflection um, because there is some, uh, but if you know how to work around it it's really not that big a deal because you should always be running a finishing pass um so that's something i think people should be more aware of because a lot of the times i get people who are like they cut out a rectangle and they're like oh man like this is supposed to be one inch why is it like 1.02 inches or something and it's it's because you're doing a full uh cross-sectional slotting to to make your contour and it's you're probably climb cutting and that means you're going to have positive uh tool or machine deflection relative to what you're cutting out yeah most likely machine deflection i would think in that case because there is quite a bit of reach between the cutting tool and kind of the lever moment on the shape oko it's like two or three there's a couple inches of uh of moment arm there i'm pretty amazed with what it can do um or what i've seen it do i should say i'm really really looking forward to uh especially the the deeper depth of cut because i'm kind of limited on the machines I have here, they can, some of them can cut stock deeper than one inch, but it's a challenge because the, you know, you need a longer cutter to reach down into a deep pocket, but the longer cutter kind of runs me out of Z when I'm trying to get over the top of a wall, right? So it's good while these machines, except for the, again, the pocket and C is kind of much bigger, but the, the Nomad and the, and the, um, other mill both have fairly limited Z height restrictions. I really want to start working with some some one inch and one and a half inch and two inch stuff. Been kind of collecting stock for a while, and now I'm finally be able to uh, build something nice on the Shapeco out of that material. Better make a video out of it. 
if you look at my enclosure, it's it's built for video. Um, lots of you know, lots of tall windows where I can get a camera in there, pretty much any angle, and um, I have enough room to even put a camera inside. And I have accessory rails. I haven't installed them yet, but I have like a couple of extra 3030s that go on the top and the back to let me just hang camera and, and wiring management and all that stuff. So um, and vacuum lines and all that stuff. It's going to take me a little while to get everything working the way I want as far as um, enclosure and dust collection and all that stuff like that. How about you? What's your uh, anything big plan next week? One of the projects I'm working on is an American flag. Um, and what a lot of people do is they will um, paint it, um, the red and the blue. They'll V-carve out the stars. And what I want to do is I want to actually do the stars as an inlay, um, just so that you can potentially 3D carve the surface to get a, a waving flag effect. But I don't want to promise that because that's sort of experimental. Because the, the problem is if you want to do a waving flag like with a 3D contoured surface, it's really difficult to like V-carve those stars in because the surface isn't flat. So the only way you're going to get clearly defined stars is um, having a distinct uh, separate piece of wood jammed in where it should be um, to retain like the, the full details. I've got a, a long reach um, 0.04 inch cutter that I'm hoping to be able to cut some, some really fine pockets with. Um, and hopefully I can, I can make some inlaid stars that are uh, pretty sharp. But that's that's sort of my my experiment for the week. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I know last week we were talking about, uh, or we were speculating on whether the uh, ten thousand k RPM limit on the pocket and C was uh, kind of a soft limit, or was that you know was there more more RPM left to to find, or a little bit of tweaking, or was that really you know ten k is ten k? And I think uh, you have some an update on that, right? I do indeed have an update on that. Um, so I went to my pocket and see with a digital tachometer, did my, uh, did a little manual G code M3 S, uh, I, I went through a range of like between 5,000 to 12,000 looking for any difference, um, in the, the RPMs and between, I think the, the minimum is like 2,400 or something. Um, but between that and 10,000 RPM, it was more or less linear. Um, there were some parts where like, I think I typed in like, a spindle speed of 9,000 and it turned out to be like 8,600 or something. Um, so it can be off every now and then. But um, at 10,000 RPM, I was measuring 10,200 RPM. Above that, the machine capped out at 10,500. But the, the pitch was, was noticeable enough that I now understand why I thought like, oh, it probably got closer to like 10,000 or 16,000 um, than I thought possible. But it, it was really just the spindle motor tone changes a lot um, at the very limits of its uh, programmed RPM. Yeah, I was, I was just curious about that. Uh, I haven't tried to run anything above 10,000 RPM, and actually I haven't found a need to. The, the 10K with the tools I, I work with um, and the materials I work with has been working really well for me. But if there was more there, I would I'd probably turn it up a little more on the really small diameter tools I use. On, on the, the micro-machining stuff, sure, but... For the most part, I found that I'm more uh, feed rate limited than anything else. Well, thank you for checking on that. I was curious. So we're coming up on an hour here. Um, any last things you want to say before I, I uh, walk us out of here? Uh, no, I think I hit everything I wanted to say. Okay. Well, I have a couple of things to say. Um, 
first one is uh, make sure you tune in for the next episode because we are very excited to have a special guest. Uh, I'm going to make you wait a little bit to find out who it is. We'll be we'll we'll post an update on uh, the DFX podcast page a little bit closer to the release date of that uh, episode, but. Really, Vince and I are both very excited about uh, uh, our next guest. And actually, we have a pretty good roster of guests lined up for the rest of the year. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy that. That's item one. Item two is just to say goodnight to you, Winston, and uh, say goodnight to our audience. I hope you guys enjoy the show and tune in in a couple of weeks when we have the next episode. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, have a good night, Eddie. Good night, Winston.